Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. This week on the show, we have a special treat for you, an interview about negotiating the sale of your business with none other than Chris Voss, the best-selling author of Never Split the Difference. Chris used his many years of experience in international crisis and high-stakes negotiation to develop a unique approach to negotiation. And this week, he talks about how this approach applies to selling a business. Now, prior to starting his firm, the Black Swan Group, Chris was the lead international kidnapping negotiator for the FBI. He served as the lead crisis negotiator for the New York City Division of the FBI, was a member of the New York City Joint Terrorist Task Force for 14 years. He was the case agent on the TWA Flight 800 catastrophe, and he also negotiated the surrender of the first hostage taker to give up in the infamous Chase Manhattan Bank robbery. During Chris's 24-year tenure with the Bureau, he was trained in the art of negotiation by not only the FBI, but also Scotland Yard and Harvard Law School. He is the recipient of the Attorney General Award in Excellence for Law Enforcement and the FBI Agents Award for Distinguished and Exemplary Service. Chris has taught business negotiation in MBA programs at the University of Southern California, Marshall School of Business, Georgetown, Harvard University, Kellogg School of Management, IMBD, and many of the major business schools across the world. In today's masterclass on negotiating the sale of your company, Chris will teach you how to get the deal terms you want, avoid an earnout, respond to a lowball offer, use strategic silence, fight back against retrading, stay cool while you feel yourself getting emotional, and avoid being used as a pawn in someone else's deal, plus so much more. Here to share with you his insights is Chris Voss. Enjoy. Hey, Chris Voss, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. John, thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you for sure. Um, you know, you've, the audience has just heard your bio, which is extensive, incredible. Give them a sense of how. Well, when you're you, old, your bio is extensive, right? Because you got a lot of time to pick stuff up. I'm old. That's I'm right. Yeah. That's right. You can count the decades by the paragraphs in your bio, right? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> give the audience, if they, you know, they've been living under a rock for the last 10 years, give the audience a sense of how you became one of the world's leading experts in negotiation. Yeah, well, uh, I studied it. I loved it. I'm coachable. I take initiative and instruction. And because of that, it really helped me rise into the position in the FBI being our lead international kidnapping negotiator. I mean, I loved it. Once I found negotiation as a concept and it was introduced to me first on a crisis hotline. But, you know, what was empathy, emotional intelligence before we really defined it and getting through to people in an accelerated way, in a great way for collaboration. You know, and so once I found it, I mean, I couldn't get enough of it. And, you know, because it was my unique ability, as Dan Sullivan would say, or something I love doing, you know, the cliche, do something you love, you don't have to work. I was into it. And uh, I kept developing the skill on all the way up through the FBI and then learning from Harvard and learning from everywhere I could, looking to outside sources. And I think that's one of the keys to getting better at something, looking outside. Um, the Wright brothers made bicycles. You know, what's the outside perspective? 
So I stayed after it. And then serendipity, the universe played a role in me teaching negotiation in the MBA program at Georgetown and continued to refine the ideas there. And then ultimately Harvard, USC and serendipity got me uh, to cross paths. And, you know, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, you're going to find there's some people that are going to outwork me, but they're going to not many. You're going to have to work pretty hard to outwork me and my son, Brandon. And then finally connected with Tall Roz, and the book has been a phenomenal success globally for a variety of reasons. Massive global success. I've read it multiple times, listened to the audiobook. I'm a huge fan, so it's a real Thank treat you. for me. You know, the audience listening to this is entrepreneurs yeah. who have started a company and are not negotiating experts. And on the other side of the negotiation table, when they go to sell their business, is likely going to be someone who negotiates for a living. Yeah. They're either a private equity group expert, they're a, they're a corporate development folks. So I'm hoping this can be a bit of a crash course for our audience who you know are negotiating what is their biggest asset most likely, uh, very emotional. It's, it's like giving away their baby. It's very, very, very fraught for them emotionally. And I'm hoping we can give them a, a couple of tips and tricks. And I guess the, the the structure I was hoping to take is there's sort of two or three major levers that happen in one of these negotiations when you sell a company. The first is like, what's the price, right? Like, you know, what what is the acquirer offering you? And of course, right. the business owner wants the highest price and the acquirer wants to pay the least. And so there's some tension there. And then the second is terms. In particular, how much of that cash is going to be paid up front versus has to be earn through some sort of goals in the future that the, the entrepreneur signed right, for. So right. I'm hoping we can sort of riff yeah. a little bit on yeah. those two variables, like how do I get a higher price? How do I get better terms? Does that make sense? Yeah, well, you know, you really want better terms before you want the higher price. Like the, the guys that are across the table from you in this, you know, um, Carl Icahn, I remember he said this a long time ago. You know, at best, if you uh, settle on a price, at best, you're 65% of the way through the negotiation. And then our icon caught on to, like, if I give you your price, I'm going to get my terms. And point of fact, you're probably never going to get your price. Like, I, I learned that in kidnap bargaining around the world. It didn't matter who I was dealing with on the other side. The other side was always a mercenary. You know, kidnapper is a a mercenary business person. And while I knew how to negotiate a great price, I always knew, like, I give you your price right now. Try and get the money. Just try. I'm going to kill you on the details. And the, you know, the mergers and acquisitions people are very good at that. You know, uh, they view negotiation uh, very much like that's why so many of these guys like to play poker. They think it's poker playing, you know, hiding. And in point of fact, that's not great negotiation. That's uh, great negotiation is highly collaborative, where we're putting our cards together to maximize value for both sides. And but they think it's poker, so that's great that they should think it's poker. Because if you think it in much larger terms, if you're deferential, if you master the space between yes and no, if you know how to exhaust them with what and how questions, you can gain the upper hand on a poker player really quickly. Well said. So let's talk about 
terms as as estates to begin with then and, and we can get into pricing later you know i think there's an old expression in m a which is you know you set the price i'll set the terms which sounds like it might have yeah. come from carl icon i've i've actually never heard that before yeah. but of course the terms that most entrepreneurs want it's fair to say i want all my cash up front i don't want an earn out where there's a hold back period where i've got to earn the money as a you know a division president in your company right. we agree on a price and i want all of it up front and and of course the other side of the table is saying hey i'll i'll pay your your price but you got to earn it so it, let's say it's a 10 million dollar deal i'll give you 3 up front and then you got to earn the other 7 yeah. and that's where they get to loggerheads and so the entrepreneur wants 100% up front. The buyer wants to pay it over time. How do you get through that sort of impasse? Well, you know, what's your future look like? What do you, what do you really, what are you trying to get on to? In many cases, the real issue with the terms is the restrictions of autonomy. You know, what do the terms look like? And that's a hard thing for an entrepreneur to suddenly become a corporate employee. Like that is often a fate worse than death. So it's not necessarily you got the earn out, but how much are they going to muzzle me? How much are they going to handicap me? How much are they going to restrict me in a process of this earn out? Now, you as an entrepreneur, you're, you're the million dollar thoroughbred, the billion dollar thoroughbred. If you know what it takes for you to be successful, uh, then those are the terms you're looking for. In the year now. Now, are you looking to get out now or are you just looking to maintain your autonomy? And I got a, another friend of mine, Dan Sullivan, coaches entrepreneurs, which is why I get coached by Dan. You know, he's in, he's in strategic coach. Like, uh, you as, you as a business owner, are you, are you really looking to retire? You know, Dan likes to say retirement is an email to the universe to come and pick up the body. <laughs> like, what's it going to do to you to retire? If you're really looking to be put out to pasture, the statistics say you're going to be dead within a year, which is why retirement is an email to the universe to come and pick up the body. So what what's the earn out really look like? Right. I guess most people want to get they get to a point where they want to de-risk. So if you're an entrepreneur and you put your life and blood and sweat and tears into a company and it's become successful, and let's just for round numbers say it's worth $10 million. And that's like all of your assets in the world. You may have a, a little bit of equity in your home. You may have bought a, you know, a few stocks along the way, but it's like 90% of your net worth. And you reach some milestone birthday, like you're 50 or 55 or 60, and you wake up and you're like, this is crazy. I'm carrying 90% of my net worth in this company that could go pear-shaped next, the next day. Right. And so they say, you know, I don't want to retire and sit on a beach, but I do want to de-risk this and I want to feel yeah. free. And I don't feel, I want to, I don't want to feel beholden to my business. Those right. are the terms that they're looking for. Right. Right. And, and you're, you're kind of part on the other side, you know, they're going to come in low. And they're going to come in with restrictive terms because that they don't know any better. And that's the way they've been taught is most likely it, it minimizes the risk for them. So first of all, they're going to move on the terms. Uh, and they're more likely to move the more collaborative they think you are. And the more deferential you are, the less 
unless you openly oppose what they say, it takes the wind out of their sails. You know, you can turn a, uh, a win-lose negotiation, a combative negotiation into a collaborative negotiation if you simply refuse to participate in the combat, which is what the design of a deferentially phrased what and how questions are. And what and how questions are, look, how, how, how does that, how does that meet our mutual goals? You know, the, the most famous how question of all is to test the other side is to say, how am I supposed to do that? Like, it's the first phrase in, in uh, the first story, never split the difference, is the application of how am I supposed to do that? And here's what's going to happen when you ask, how am I supposed to do that? It's going to get him to stop and think that every time, every time, the answer is not as important as the thought process you just put him in. You put him into deep thinking, it's exhausting. You know, the secret to gaining the upper hand in a negotiation is giving the other side the illusion of control. So you're asking a how question, first of all, for its mental impact. Now, secondarily, nine times out of 10, they're going to adjust the terms on the spot, or they're going to start a collaborative process to adjust the terms or the price on the spot. Now, as I said, this was a test. Now, one time in 10, they're going to fire back at you because if you want the deal, you'll do it. Right, you just got some great data back. What you wanted to find out in the first place is, are they positioning or do they mean it? Without asking that question, but you're getting that answer based on their response. So the what and how questions and how questions are designed primarily for implementation and the what question is designed primarily, not exclusively, but primarily to uncover problems. What stands in the way? What's stopping you from make this, making this decision? What's the best way to attack the obstacles that we have to overcome? Principally, but not exclusively, designed to uncover problems, how questions, principally to create collaboration for implementation. And these questions are also exhausting for the other side to hear. And they don't know that you're exhausted. They feel deferential. There's great power in deference. So in these types of negotiations, sort of your first way to get space between yes and no is to start with how and what questions. Interesting. And, and, and occasionally, I guess... They'll they'll throw it back to you, and, and maybe it's some, you know, uh, like a, an overly arrogant you know, private equity group partner who's feeling having a bad day, and he or she kind of retorts and says, "Well, that's your problem. You right. got to figure out how to, you know." I, I'm sure it's rare, but occasionally it must happen. It does happen. I would say about ten percent of the time. How do you prep for that ten percent of the time? Yeah. First of all, you got to get yourself in that position to begin with, and then there's some mental rehearsal involved. Like if somebody slams it back in my face, and they have, I find a way to ask the same question with a different tone of voice. And you can practice this. Practice emphasizing each way to deliver it. Like, how am I supposed to do that? And you can say it again, how am I supposed to do that? I mean, you can change the meaning and make it land differently every time. 
And every time you throw it at him, they, it feels deferential, but you're actually engaging in the long game where you're wearing them down. And they don't know that you're wearing them down. You know, you want in the M&A guy space and uh, the buyout space, private equity space, let them make their bonus on somebody else. You want to be highly collaborative and highly deferential. And you want to make a great deal where both sides prosper. And by and large, they're going to be looking more at short-term gains where you're offering a better deal that they haven't discovered. And they're poker players and you're a superior player by being collaborative no matter what they do and deferential. Chris, would you, if there were certain terms that were deal breakers for you, for example, oftentimes we hear from entrepreneurs, I will not do an earnout under any circumstances whatsoever. I will right. not do an earnout. Or, you know, I, I, they must hire all of my employees when I sell my company. If they're not prepared to take all of my employees, I will not sell my company. Like if they have a hard line in the sand, would you coach them to reveal that to kind of get to whether there's a deal there early in the negotiation? No, I mean, you want, you, you want to get there, but you want to make the other side work to get there. I mean, the more you try to shortcut the process, the more you actually whet the other side's appetite for more. So you want them to feel like they earned everything they got. And if you, if you know, if you know you got some boundaries and it comes up, you know, you start by asking a hard question. How am I supposed to transfer a successful organization to you? If you're going to get rid of the people that made it successful. I mean, you know, a term to the other side adjusts when it costs them. Now you've got a well-oiled machine that gave it the value that you currently have it on the table for. Now, they don't care that you're loyal to your employees. They don't care you've been to their kids' birthdays. They don't have any of the personal relationships. None of that matters to them. They're not invested in it. They are, however, invested in a successful operation. So if their term of change is going to cost them money, now you've got their attention. Like I don't care that I don't I don't care that you're godfather to your secretary's grandchildren. I do care how well this company's gonna function without that secretary or without that executive assistant or without that chief of staff. Like changing out employees is expensive, more expensive than keeping on the people who know what they're doing. And that's your reason for getting them to take a look at hanging on to the employees. Like they don't care that you have emotional attachments to them. They're attached to the efficiency of the organization. And empathy is about understanding what it looks like to the other side and getting out of your own way and then phrasing a term that they need to give you because it's in their interest. And many of these terms, like especially, you know, keeping on employees, the reasons for that to get them to change their mind is if not doing it costs them and that'll get their attention. 
the one of the toughest ones is the earnout piece because they have the ultimate rebuttal, which is again, you say, look, you know, the, the entrepreneur will say, you know, I, I don't want an earnout, I want 100 percent of my cash up front. And and the other side will often respond and say, How am I supposed to do that? In other words, if if you're gonna leave the next day, we can't capture the value that we're buying here. We need you to help us in this transition. We need you to kind of make sure that you continue to grow this business. So we need to guarantee that you're going to be around in five years. So that's why we got to put 60% of the value that we're going to pay you uh, in some future payment. And and they have this, and it's, it can be a very persuasive, and, and I think entrepreneurs feel in some way almost like, Oh geez, when you say it that way, I guess you're right. I probably should. I, you know, I probably should agree with earn out. Like they, they feel broken down by their argument. Can can you suggest ways they might use mental judo to rebut it? Yeah. Well, again, exploring the space between yes and no. Like you got to know from the other side. Do they mean it? Do they have you know? Is other than their argument, like do they mean it? Or are they just asking for more because they're expecting to land closer to you? And if you got a bet, and 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 I, you know, we live in a Las Vegas world. You, you you're placing your bets. What's most likely? I happen to live in Las Vegas, but I've been using this analogy for years. If you had to bet, they're asking for more than they're willing to settle for because that's the way they're used to doing business the quickest. So you got to know where their lines really are. You know, their how and what questions are a great way to get there. You know, another. Uh, Black Swan skill to master the nuance of is the label. Cause again, you're exploring to pay the space between yes and no. So they, they've laid out the argument for you. It appears that the argument is clear. However, there's always stuff they left out. And so the label is seems like you've given this a lot of thought. And then the critical moment is what we call Shut up. You, you lay a label out and you got to go dead silent. You got to go Elon Musk dead silent. Like, um, I'm a fan of both Elon Musk and, um, uh, Lex Friedman. Listen to one of Elon's interviews, but you know, he's been on like four times and there's a famous point in time. You, you ask Elon a question, you got to sit there and shut up while it bakes in his brain. And one of the questions he asks, Elon was dead silent for 22 seconds. Now, most people can't stay silent for a second. And three seconds seems like an eternity. And Elon sat there for 22 seconds. Like, try counting that out. Try to look the next time in one of your conversations when somebody says something to you. And I challenge you to go dead silent for two seconds without bursting into flames. But a good label, you got to go dead silent. You got to go Elon Musk dead silent. And you got to let it bake into the other side's brain. And you got to wait for them to respond. And you throw out a good label after they've just made a great case, which most likely is rehearsed. And most likely there's more to it. You're seeing the tip of the iceberg on their thinking. They're looking for collaboration. They're looking for you to help them think. They're looking to explore the space between yes and no. The simple label seems like you've given this a lot of thought. 
is the perfect label to find out what's really going on. And you got to wait for the other side to, to react. I mean, there's a lot more to labeling, but that's one of the most effective labels that are almost under. I can't think of a circumstance where it's not an appropriate response to be a phenomenal information gathering move on your part to explore the space between yes and no. I love that. And it also puts the ball back in their court without giving anything up from your side. It's back in their court. And it also buys you some time to reflect and think and process yourself, which all of those things. And, and yeah. one of the critical things is it puts it back in their court in a way that they don't feel coerced or cornered by. Now, you've kind of left them in a position where they're probably going to open up to you. But they're not going to feel like they have to. Like a question causes people to feel like they have to respond. And some people don't like to be made to feel like they have to respond. And consequently, since they don't like it, they won't. But there's something about the way a label hits the brain that just draws people out in a way that's almost impossible to resist. One of the dirty little secrets of negotiating the sale of a company, purchase of a company actually, is something called retrading, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Retrading happens when there's an agreement in principle. Everybody agrees and they often sign, sign a letter of intent, which is a relatively formal document. This is, yeah, we're gonna pay you whatever, $10 million for your company and we're gonna take all your employees and the deal's gonna close on this date. Everybody agrees that's great. There's going to be a period of due diligence where the acquirer, you know, looks into and confirms everything you said in the part of, you know, the sale process. And then there's going to be a day where the deal closes. And miraculously, out of thin air, out of the blue, two days before closing, the acquirer calls up and says, ah, geez, you know, I, I thought we were going to pay $10 million for your business, but we found a few things in diligence and now we're only going to pay seven and a half. And, and retraining, in my experience, happens in this world for two reasons. One's legitimate, the other's illegitimate. Legitimate is they did find something and you did lie or fib or, you know, embellish something. And, and that's legitimate if they found that. However, illegitimate retrading is they do it because they know you're mentally committed to the deal, right? They, they know that you bought the ski chalet or the vacation property. You've told your spouse and your kids, and now you, you don't have a back. back. You, you're committed. And I'm most interested in the illegitimate retrading. What would you coach or how would you coach an entrepreneur who believes that they are being illegitimately retraded against? Well, first off, you know, hit them with, sounds like you got a reason for saying. I mean, even if they gave you the reason, you want to go back and you want to plow this ground again for exactly the reason that you just said. You need to know whether it's legitimate or illegitimate. Is it a tactic? Is there a tactic going on here? Be happy to discuss it. Again, this is a space between yes and no when you're trying to find out what's really going on with the other side. You need to find out whether or not this is legitimate or not. And this is an ongoing test of your uh, ability to simply not get caught off guard. So you, you want to, you want to be willing to dig into it. Be genuinely curious. I mean, be open to the conversation because they got deadlines too. You know, they've made promises with the other side. 
their uh, time is banging on them just as hard as it's banging on you because they don't get their bonus if they don't close. So it's not that you're disadvantaged here. They've been telling people about closing this deal too. They've been planning on moving on to another negotiation. They've got their own deadlines. They get other projects they want to work on. If very deferentially, you calmly get into this and are happy to explore to find out whether or not it's legitimate. You know, there's a whole variety. It sounds like you got a reason for saying it. Sounds like your diligence process isn't very effective. Sounds like I should be prepared for you to uncover more objections. Sounds like you weren't, didn't approach this that thoroughly to begin with. You know, the, the way I put the inflection on each one of those at the end is a genuine curiosity. It's not an accusation. Like, if are you telling me that this is your first rodeo? You know, an oriented question, which is a, ver- a variation of another skill. As long as you maintain deference and curiosity and patience becomes your weapon, then their illegitimate retraining at the last minute begins to work against them because they didn't expect that. You know, they've been taught they can come in with this tactic the last minute. Let me drive some more concessions at the table. The other side's going to give in. They're going to freak out. They're going to get rattled. You know, I got the upper hand. They get the upper hand only if you give it to them. What happens if you don't give it to them? What happens if you let them keep the illusion of control? If you maintain deference and curiosity. And again, you don't say yes, you don't say no. You don't reject anything. What you're doing is you're finding out whether or not it's legitimate or not and something you got to fix or whether it's simply a tactic. And if they reveal themselves to be a tactic, how would you respond? I'm I'm just gonna say how am I how am I supposed to how am I supposed to make those changes? You know how how am I supposed to rely on what you're saying? You know how, how do I know this is ever gonna go through? I'm still hitting them with labels and what now questions, and I'm not gonna get rattled, and I'm I'm gonna let them to carry carry, carry the deal forward because <clears throat> they've made the same promises to people on their side, that you're likely guilty of yourself. Don't take yourself hostage. They're human beings. They're counting their bonuses. They got obligations to their boss. They're this deep into this. They got to make the deal too. Let, let, let time be their problem. You mentioned don't get rattled a few times. And for entrepreneurs, they find this really challenging because for many of them, their business is their baby. It's like the closest thing to their child as, as there can be. And when the other side of the negotiation table says, yeah, we were going to pay X, but now we're going to pay X minus 20%. They take it as a personal attack. Like you've just told me my child is ugly and I'm not going to take that from you. You promised me you little fill in the blank and they get emotional because it's their child. Yeah. How do you coach people to stay objective and, and avoid getting emotional in a negotiation? 
That's a great question. There's, uh, there's, there's kind of three parts to this. All right, so you're talking about stuff that's eminently predictable. So going into the process, imagine it's going to happen. You know, be Michael Jordan, be Tiger Woods, be the best athlete in whatever sport you happen to follow, be Tom Brady. How do these guys deal with it when it happens in the moment? They thought about it in advance. And then instead of imagining themselves getting rattled, they imagine themselves staying cool. You know, you can run the movie in your head however you want. And however you run it in your head is how it's going to happen. And I heard this referred to a long time ago as visioning, something that great athletes, all the great athletes do. They envision the moment coming, but they don't envision themselves giving in to their amygdala what they do is they envision themselves staying calm. They envision themselves staying curious. They envision themselves reacting calm. So curiosity in its purest form is a superpower. Curiosity is cited in non-negotiation books as a superpower and it's diverse as that same Nicholas Taleb's book, Anti-Fragile. And he says he coined the term anti-fragile is things that gain from stress and trauma and disorder. He calls it post-traumatic stress growth. Instead of PTSD, it's PTSG. And he says curiosity is a superpower that helps you grow from trauma and disorder. Um, man's search for meaning. Curiosity is cited, and I wish I could tell you the author's name off the top of my head. When I, I'll remember his name when we, we get off. But he was a guy that was in a concentration camp. Victor and Frankel, he, wasn't it? Yeah. He discovered that curiosity was a great survivor's skill. Like it was so horrific to be there. As soon as he saw people get step back and go like, I'm kind of curious as to what horrific thing is going to happen next. He saw those people survive psychologically even better. So you start finding curiosity and showing up in different aspects of the universe that it becomes a superpower. So imagine yourself staying curious now, and then practice it in your day-to-day -day interactions. You get interactions that set you off every day with your significant other, with your kids, with your colleagues, you know, with the guy at the dry cleaning store that asks you a stupid question. These are the small stakes practices to stay curious and to just be amused. You know, I had a friend of mine once said, told me his father said, don't let them anger you, let them amuse you. There's a certain amount of practice that goes on here. So the preparation and the practice, practice staying curious in your other small stakes interactions. This is a predictable interaction. Imagine yourself how reacting calmly in the moment. And then finally, when the moment comes, that's the time for the late night FM. DJ voice. Now, I use that on myself when I get rattled in the middle of a negotiation, principally to calm the other side down. But me forcing myself to use that voice calms me down. And I use it as an override tool for my anger in the moment, even more so than the impact it's going to have on the other side. And it's going to have a great impact on the other side. So the secondary benefit is it calms things down.
The primary benefit is it calms me down. And those are kind of the three stages to getting prepared for when the other side says, not only is your kid ugly, but your kid is stupid. (laughs) Visualize, be curious, and implement the late night FM DJ voice. I love it. You had the FBI task force, I think, for hostage negotiation. Am I getting that? Am I getting that right? Well, it's close. I was on a joint terrorist task force in New York City, which involved always, of course, hostage takings. And then I was also a hostage negotiator. So it's overlapping missions. The hostage takings often involve terrorists. So you can see how that's an old, two different entities with overlapping missions. Yeah. Let's talk about the actual price of a company. So there's two schools of thought, I think, that come up. You know, there's one school of thought that says, look, you never state your price, right? You, you know, you're putting a ceiling onto which you'll ever sell your company for the market. It's not like you're buying a, a car where there's a, a relatively predetermined price range that the car is available for. Or when you buy a house, you can look up other houses in the market on that street and you go, yeah, it's probably within this range. With a business, it's really in the eyes of the acquirer. And so there's a school of thought that says, never name your price. You might be surprised. And if you actually do name your price, you're putting a seal onto which you will ever sell your business for. There's another school of thought um, that says, I'm just going to go in high, right? Like if I want 10, I'm going to ask for 20. And then I'll negotiate down to 10. I'll be happy. I'll get what I want. What's the right way to approach this getting your best price? I think going in high drives more deals away, creates more animosity than pulling a price out of the other side does. And I'm going to be really um, explore a lot of information before I actually, a, a number comes out of my mouth. Uh, the person you're negotiating with has put a lot of effort into what they think the price should be. If you can tell yourself you're not going to take yourself hostage, like not only do I want to know what their range is, I want to know their range in, in point of fact too. Because people are much more open to talking about ranges than if you ask for a specific number, the chances are that they're going to come in with a, a number that's at the extreme end of the range that favors them. I want to know the range. I want to know where they're getting their data. I want to know what their thought processes are. And I'm going to get into it with you, what you think the numbers should be, before I ever throw a number out. I'm very much a strong believer in letting the other side name price first because I want to explore it. And I can, I practice not letting uh, an extreme anchor suck the life out of me. You know, the, the, the phrase, um, you know, Mike Tyson phrase, everybody's got a plan until they get hit. You know, that's uh, that gets translated into negotiations that you're not prepared for an extreme anchor. I had one of the students in my class at Georgetown. I'm teaching MBA part-time students. What does it mean if you're a part-time MBA student? It means you're a business person has a full-time job and a family. And you're in a negotiation class at night because you're a go-getter. But you got a job. And I was teaching them to use the skills in their day-to-day businesses. And one of them wrote one of the papers Getting hit with an extreme anchor is like watching a vision disappear in front of your eyes. 
because he made himself vulnerable to a high number. Now, the other side wants you to do that. Again, this is eminently predictable. You want them to go first. They're going to come in with a number you're not going to like. You imagine yourself telling yourself, that's an exploratory number. That's a test. They know it's a test. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to start talking about, you know, sounds like he gave this a lot of thought, you know, this magic label again. Let me start testing what's their criteria. Are they, are they, uh, are, did they calculate the number based on the science of the zodiac, their kid's birthday and what time they got out of bed that morning, which is most likely? Or have they got something really solid they're sticking to? You know, let's talk about how you got that number. Let's talk about how that number plays out. Let me talk about maybe I can get some magic terms that end up making that number a great number. If I give them their number, this whole, this whole bit about getting the other side's hopes up over a number, there's a pretty good chance they're doing that too. If I give you your number, I may just have terms that make it worth 10x for me in the long run. So it's, it's a, it's a combination effort and don't, you know, practice not getting rattled over the number being an extreme anchor designed to dishearten you. Practice not getting disheartened. It's just a number. It's just a gambit on their part. How do you know when an extreme anchor is such, is just a negotiation ploy versus a real number that they're not willing to budge off of. I think I've heard you refer to it in a previous interview as proof of life. Am I, maybe you could talk a little bit about that concept. Well, proof of life is, is a separate issue than, than the okay. numbers. Um, and, and really, like if they, if they throw a number at me that's catching me off guard, I've rehearsed in my head enough times to say, how am I supposed to do that? That it's second nature. Under and I and I practice it all the time. And there is a lot of practice. And you'd be surprised the number of times you imagine yourself saying, How am I supposed to do that? The number of times you look in a mirror and say it out loud. It wires your brain to do that in the moment. All you gotta do is wire your brain to do it in the moment. Now the response to how am I supposed to do that is always a massive amount of data. Like they're gonna, they're gonna soften. They're gonna, they're gonna dodge. They're gonna move off to the other side. They're gonna provide some explanation, or they're gonna come back at you like a fastball right straight at your cranium. When and that's when, when, when they come back at you hard and fast and instantaneous, it's not a gambit on their side. You know, it's legitimate. Now you might not like the answer, but you got the answer. Going from wondering to knowing always leaves you better off. You need to know whether or not this is a hard number or whether or not they're just throwing a number because they're looking for flexibility. Now, it might be a hard number, but you're much smarter knowing that getting the answer to that particular question before you move on. Going from wondering to knowing always makes you smarter. Well said. So that's important for me to understand the difference between sort of digging a little deeper behind uh, what you perceive to be an extreme anchor and this idea of proof of life. Maybe walk through proof of life then. What, what do you mean by that? Well, proof of life is comes up much more as, are they ever going to make the deal with you at all? And that's much more in an opening conversation. I mean, you can establish, is there a deal and is the deal with you in the early conversations? Are they, are they feeling you out? Are you a competing bid? Are you, are you somehow, is your situation simply a ploy 
to be used against somebody else when they don't expect to ever close with you. Proof of life is, is, is designed around that. Is there a deal and is the deal with you? Oftentimes there is a deal. The deal just isn't with you. Uh, and I've heard salespeople say, if somebody calls you and they want to quote, they want to quote, they want to quote, you got a live buyer on your hands. If somebody's really focused on a price and the nuance of that is they're a live buyer, but they ain't buying from you. They're driving in a quote because they're trying to drive the price down on somebody else. So yes, they're a live buyer. There is a deal. The deal is just not with you. And that's what proof of life is about, finding out whether or not the other side's serious about doing business with you, which also in, in the buyout process early on, somebody wants to buy your business. Your legitimate question is like, why my business? I mean, what, why, why are you interested in me? I mean, I got competitors. I get there are plenty of other people out there that you could buy. Why do you want to buy me? Their answer tells you what their value proposition is, what matters to them, which then is extraordinarily useful on down the line. When they're trying to kick the legs out from under you over the value of your business, you can say, like, look, when we first started talking, this is what you told me the value of my business was. How does that stack up with what you're telling me now? That's that how question, which is very deferential. So you, even though the proof of life per se might not be an issue, there is a value proposition issue there, which is going to be extraordinarily useful to you down the line in their opening conversation with you when you're doing proof of life. They don't see it as a negotiation. They actually see it as them selling you on whether or not they should be your partner. And it gives you massively valuable information to use when they think you're in a negotiation. But actually, you've been negotiating with the, the, the um, I think the opening word in every negotiation is hello. Nice. <laughs> I'd love to ask you one last question before I let you go. And, and, and it relates to the, you know, the, the def, the difference in the kind of power struggle. When we were chatting offline, I described it as a bit of a David and Goliath paddle in the sense that these, you know, these entrepreneurs are great at what they do, but they don't have a lot of experience negotiating the sale of their company. They do it once and that's, that's it. And on the other side of the negotiation table, they have, People who have gone to your Georgetown course, I'm guessing, <laughs> you know, people that are really sophisticated negotiators. Uh, well, and I'm going to interrupt you for a second because a well-practiced negotiator doesn't necessarily make a sophisticated negotiator. Okay. Tell me more about that. Well, well-practiced is they're used to doing, it's like physics under Newton, you know, Newtonian physics. Yeah, you know, you can do pretty well under the old rules, but there's some just some basic bare knuckle bargaining that makes you a C student. Maybe even in some cases a B student. But to become really sophisticated is when you start blending the 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 tactical advantages of emotional intelligence in. When you realize that deference is uh is uh, puts you in a position of immense influence and power. The curiosity is superpower. Very few people in the space you're talking about have developed the skills to that level. And so you could be more sophisticated than they are in the application of emotional intelligence, 
when they may have been doing it a lot, they just weren't doing it that well. Well said. And that gives our listeners uh, a sense of confidence to to move forward. They're all emotionally intelligent because they you know lead people and then they negotiate other things all the time. So they've got yes. to flex that muscle. Um, for folks who want to learn more, I mean, you've got obviously never split the difference is a global bestseller. You'd have to be living under a rock if you haven't uh, you know heard of it, but it's an incredible book. You got the master class you teach at some of the world's best universities. You've also got a newsletter, which I love, um, all about negotiating. Talk a little bit about the newsletter and how people can get it and that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, uh, the best thing about the newsletter is it's actionable and it's concise. Like I used to get the daily 10-point briefing from the Wall Street Journal, and it exhausted me to try to work my way through that. Like, which of the 10 do I want to pick? If I pick it, you know, that wears me out. And then if I read that article, like I got to go take a nap. Like it doesn't prep me for the day, it exhausts me. So our, our newsletter is a concise and actionable article. It comes out once a week and it is not exhausting. It's it's never more than a thousand words, so usually between 500 and a thousand max, which is page and a half of actionable, usable information. The se secondary benefit of the, the newsletter and like that third benefit is that it's complimentary, so it's not going to cost you, but it's actionable, it's usable. And then it actually starts putting you in a position where you learn about the different training products we have. You know, what's your next step in your journey? Do you need help right now where you might need coaching from us? You might want coaching from us to coach you through the deal and we coach people. Or you may want to jump into a journey where these tools are so much fun to use, you want to apply it across the board. Subscribing to the newsletter gives you indicators. It's the gateway to the everything we have. It's the gateway to our website. It's the gateway to our products. It's just like the best place to get started. So wherever you are now, and if your hair is on fire, you want to be coached. If you got a little bit of time, maybe you want to be coached for this deal, but you want to study some more. We're going to be able to help you find that in the newsletter, The Edge. You go to our website, blackswanltd.com. And if you don't get a box to sign up right away, it's in the upper right-hand corner. There's past articles. You can work your way through to find something that's applicable to you now. You can sign up. And if you sign up, you get it emailed to you on Tuesday morning, which means usually you got Monday behind you and you're ready to get into it on Tuesday. <sighs> The website is blackswanltd.com. The newsletter is The Edge. I will put all those in the show notes at builttosell.com. Chris, I can't thank you enough for doing this. I appreciate it. Yeah, John, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And there you have it for today's episode between John and Chris. If you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did, be sure to hit that subscribe button. And if you want to help support this podcast, I'd encourage you to share this out with a friend or a colleague who you feel like would love listening to today's episode. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, be sure to visit Chris's podcast page, which you can find over at builttosell.com. If you know of someone who would be a great fit like Chris to be a guest right here on the podcast, you can actually nominate them by heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate. There you'll have the chance to nominate someone to be a guest right here on the show with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders. 
who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and I look forward to talking to you again next week. 